Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Russ Mann is today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast. Russ is CEO and board member of WineBid, the leading global auction e-commerce site for fine and vintage wines. He also serves on the board of UMA, a New York Stock Exchange listed voiceover IP company for businesses and consumers. He's on the board and original angel investor of Demand Star Corporation, a B2G marketplace. He's also an advisor to the founders of Modus Real Estate Closing. Russ cares deeply about building great cultures with high-performing teams who delight customers with amazing products and services. Outside of work, he volunteers his time and contributes to various organizations like Year Up and Northwest Harvest. He's also married to what I would say is maybe the better half, Deanna, a recent wedding, which is huge congrats to you. Welcome, Russ. Thanks, Shauna. I appreciate you having me on to what fuels you. So, yeah, uh, I'm super to psyched to see you. Yeah, yeah. Great to see you. And I love your background. Some people are going to be listening and not seeing, but uh, Russ has oodles and oodles of wine behind him. So we'll get into the wine, but we're going to start with rapid fire. You ready? Sure. Okay. What is your favorite wine region? Oh, my favorite wine region. I'd say right now it's Burgundy. I've um, been exploring all the intricacies of Burgundy wine, but you always have to root for the hometown favorite and Washington wines are incredible and often overlooked, underappreciated, and they're great buys to be found on WineBid for vintage Washington wines. Okay, well, I need to hear more because um, I just drink whatever's put in front of me, but obviously, you know, David, my husband loves wine, my brother, my parents, a lot of people around me are really into it, so I'm lucky they can just put it in front of me and I drink it, but we will, we will drink some uh, Washington wines together. Um, who has influenced you most um, in your incredible career? Well, I've been fortunate to have great mentors through my entire life. From even back in elementary school, I remember a teacher named Billy Barnaby who uh, got me into this thing that we used to do as a club called Future Problem Solving, where you would tackle big problems facing the world and you would be forced to solve them in a structured way and compete on that. And I often attribute Billy Barnaby getting me into future problem solving back then as to why I became a tech entrepreneur. But along the way, I had um, uh, over at business school, Len Schlesinger, a professor who taught service economics, a post-business school, Keith Kroc, who was the founder of Ariba and, is, and then later on helped grow DocuSign. You know, oh, works, wow. Uh, yeah, now works uh, at the U.S. government, and he was on one of my boards back in the day. And also another great local entrepreneur, Mike Brochu, uh, who was uh, introduced to me through the folks over at Voyager Capital. Mike Brochu is a multi-time CEO. He's uh, now primarily retired, although he still does some board work, and he's been a great uh, business mentor and life mentor as well. So I've been very fortunate to have all kinds of mentors through my uh, life and through my career. Yeah. Well, you did a 
Good job of that being a rapid fire answer with lots of people. And I now want to know who they all are because um, they've done a good job with you. Okay. So what's your dream place to go fishing? Because you always post the best pictures. Yes, yeah, so Sean, you know that I've gotten into fly fishing in the past few years since I moved up to Seattle um, from Southern California seven years ago. So my dream place to go fly fishing is probably, I haven't yet to really fly fish around Colorado. So that's the dream place I'd like to go. Uh, around here up in Seattle, there's great beach fishing around the shores of the Puget Sound that can go fishing any time of uh, any time of year. So any okay, day well you have to teach me. Fishing, I want to wear the outfit yeah. and take some pictures. <laughs> any day to go fishing is a dream place to go fishing. Yeah. And what, um, I guess, who is your favorite winemaker? Oh, my favorite winemaker. I'm still learning about all the different winemakers out there. There's over 10,000 wineries in the U.S. alone. I think one of my favorite winemakers uh, would have to be, so far, Nicolas Potel out of France, who I haven't been able to meet yet, but we, we see many of his wines on WineVid. Nicolas Patel is a bad boy, punk rock winemaker. He's a new generation of Burgundian winemakers. Got a very interesting family history, which we could talk about sometime. So I love tasting his wines and, and seeing what the new generation of winemakers are doing. Yeah. So this question, um, this question I like, I don't know if people like it, but I like it. What's your biggest fear? I just feel like you get to know people when you ask them that. Oh. Biggest fear. The biggest fear is that I won't have taken as much opportunity as possible to help as many people as possible in their careers or in our community. That's one of the things that fuels me. I'm sure we'll be talking about in a little bit. And I just always hope that uh, I take every moment possible to empower the people I work with empower the people that I collaborate with, like you, when we work together on recruiting some people into some of my companies, and also to empower um, up-and-coming youth, people of diversity, uh, and our general community here in Seattle at large. Yeah. My biggest fear. Well, you're, you're doing it. So this leads us actually perfectly into the next question, which is, what are you most proud of? Oh, I'm most proud of the folks that I have worked with that have gone on to achieve great things. Uh, people from my in my prior in my prior companies, uh, Jonathan Greenblatt oh, uh, was with me at Realtor.com 20 plus years ago. He went on to start Ethos Bottled Water, sold that to Starbucks. Then he went to work for the Obama administration, and now he's the head of the Anti Defamation League. So he's wow. really impacting people positively. And uh, he said I was a mentor for her, him back in the day. To more recently, uh, some of the young people that I work with at Europe. A young man named Alex Chen, who uh, came from a first-generation uh, immigrant uh, here in Seattle, was a Subaru mechanic, went through the Year Up program, and now he's a Microsoft developer, uh, working for That's Microsoft, amazing. and earning a great salary and building his career and his personal net worth. And that was due to the Year Up program primarily, but I felt very fortunate to be able to mentor him through that program. So those are the kinds of things I'm most proud of, or the people that I been able to work with that have gone on to achieve amazing things. Yeah, you must feel great about that. I've always been super curious and kind of fascinated by Europe, and I want to definitely learn more from you about it. Sure. Um, okay, this is our final uh, rapid fire, and then we're going to get into the meat of Russ Mann. You ready? 
Yep. Okay. If there was a movie made about your life, what would it be called? Oh. It sounds like <laughs> something around giving back to others. <laughs> yeah. It, maybe it would be the, uh, well, my old life, um, the, the cowboy fisherman entrepreneur who comes through town, does a few good things, and then hopefully rides off into the sunset at the town. With, with, a, with a fabulous glass of Burgundy in his hand. Exactly. <laughs> I know that's like Burgundy is supposed to have like a lot of value, right? I mean, I, that's part of your business, too, is thinking about the numbers. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, yeah. trying to help consigners get the most money for their wine and, and keeping track of all the trends of all the different wines around the world. Yeah, cool. Well, so, OK, so I met you. Um, Gosh, I think it was probably seven, eight years ago, I'm guessing. And, um, you know, I'm meeting you as a tech entrepreneur, Harvard MBA, uh, super badass. And I'm just curious what you were like when you were little or when, um, what kind of got you to this place? Who kind of mentored you and developed you along the way besides the teacher you were telling me about? Yeah, we talked about Billy Barnaby. I think yeah. uh, you might not have expected me to be a tech entrepreneur if you saw me when I was a kid, uh, because I was a kind of arts nerd. I, I, you know, I did, I did well in school. I grew up in upper middle class Orlando, Florida, but I was doing student council. I was doing the school newspaper. I was doing the school play. I was uh, in an 80s, I started an 80s new wave band. So was what was around. it called? Oh, uh, it was called As Is. I like it. It's called One Way. Had many different names. It pivoted. It, you know, and what were you changes. in the band? Were you were you singer, guitarist? I was guitarist and backup singer. Oh, that's so fun. That's yes, awesome. Wait, I didn't know. Now, now I'm going to call you out and make you play guitar and sing yeah, while you're while we're drinking our wine. Been a long time. <laughs> so, you're tell me about your parents. Like, did they value education? Was that really clear to you that um, you know oh, you go absolutely. on to go to a school like Cornell? Yeah, so uh, my folks, my dad's a lawyer, my mom was an entrepreneur actually, and also very artsy. She had many different interests and in things that she did uh, from helping be an accountant for small businesses to doing a photographic studio and doing a catering business. So I think that's probably that weird mixture of legal background. And my father was also a small um, office attorney. So mm. they were both kind of entrepreneurs, which maybe that's what led to me being an entrepreneur now. Um, yeah. But with regard to education, the, the basic rule in the house was B's or better. Basically A's were expected, B's or better, anything less than a B and you got grounded. So no <laughs> got car, grounded. no going did you ever out. get? Did you ever get grounded? It sounds like you must have had great grades to get into Cornell. Well, I got, I think, one C in calculus in my senior year, but outside of that, it was always A's and B's. I actually didn't go to Cornell at first. I, I went to Emory for a year, and mm. I ended up transferring to Cornell. You didn't it, like it, Atlanta? I, I loved Atlanta. Uh, when I went to Emory, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just wanted a liberal arts uh, degree. But then, but the interesting thing was, I, I, Dartmouth was my stretch school where I really wanted to go. And Emory was my safe school, and I got waitlisted at Dartmouth and accepted at Emory. And so I thought, Emory really wants me, and Emory's a great school, so I'm just going to go to Emory. So yeah. I went to Emory, and while I was there, I developed this fascination with Asian studies, um, Japanese language, because this was in the, in the mid-'80s. 
when Japan was rising, it's kind of like the China of now, Japan was the height of economic dominance, you know, the leading in cars, leading in electronics, leading in TVs. And so I thought I could study Japanese, which, which relates to my artistic background, my interest in poetry and the arts, but also relates to uh, business. And so Emory did not have a great Japanese language or Asian studies program. So I applied to, I researched all the best programs and Cornell and Oberlin were two of the best programs. Oh, so I applied to Cornell and I applied to Oberlin. I thought I wanted Oberlin a little more than Cornell because Oberlin was a little more artsy with the great arts program there. And Cornell was obviously a big Ivy League school. And uh, Oberlin waitlisted me and Cornell accepted me immediately. I was like, to heck with Oberlin. Cornell yeah. was a better on school. To, on, to Cornell. on to yeah. Cornell. So yeah. I went to Cornell, majored in Asian studies and graduated with, uh, with a focus on J Japan and Japanese language. And then um, later on, interestingly, when I decided to go back to business school, I thought I'm really interested in tech. I knew I wanted to be a tech entrepreneur. So of course I applied to Stanford and Harvard and Harvard accepted me immediately and Stanford waitlisted me. So once again, I was like, well, you know, those are both great schools and either one would have been awesome. Stanford oh, yeah. was a little more techie, but Harvard, since they wanted me and they accepted me right, I just accepted that program. So all yeah. three of my uh, educational experiences were a little bit of a bake-off and it was me <laughs> applying to the schools and the schools kind of uh, deciding whether who wanted me more and which were the, which were the better fit. So yeah. it's a little bit of uh, intentionality a little bit of serendipity on all three. Yeah, interesting. And so, yeah, we um, obviously getting a Harvard MBA is kind of just opens up so many opportunities. Was that something that you always knew you wanted or you needed it because you were kind of deep into your career at that point? You had been consulting, right? I had a little been bit of consulting. consulting. Uh, when I came out of Cornell in Japan, I got hired by Deloitte uh, to be their Asia guy in Boston. So they, I came back from Asia, went to Boston, set, set up shop there, and then they moved me to LA and then they immediately shipped me to Korea because uh, of course, Korea and Japan are the same, even though they're not, completely different language. But back in the early 90s, uh, Asia was still just exploding. And so to have, I was the Asia guy. So one thing that's not on my LinkedIn profile that some people know about me, Shauna, you may or may not know about this, is I actually took a bit of a sabbatical from the business life to figure out what I wanted to do. And so after two years of being with Deloitte and traveling around the world for Deloitte, I went off to go be a cowboy poet in New Mexico. And so- Okay, I did not know this. I need to hear everything. What? What's yeah, so a cowboy a of, poet? I went off to go work at a dude ranch by day and took people on trail rides from one hour to full day. And I lived in the hills of New Mexico, and I also, I was still hearkening to my artistic background. So I was writing poetry, music, I got some poems published. And uh, during that time, I figured out that neither cowboying nor poetry pay. And I had learned enough that I needed to earn an income. And so I thought I first wanted to go to law school. So I applied to a bunch of law schools, got into a couple of good ones, and at the last minute, pulled out and decided to go to business school. So reapplied to business schools. and you know, went through the Harvard versus Stanford routine and got into Harvard. So during yeah. that time- Oh, that's, a, that's super interesting. I'm hearing this, Russ, actually through the ears of a mom. Yeah. And I always try to listen critically during these moments of decisions that people make who are ultimately successful and realizing, obviously it's a journey, not a destination, blah, blah, blah. We know that. 
But what were your parents, what was your parents' reaction when you're like, I'm just going to go kind of, you know, I'm going to go do this. They were kind of freaking out. Um, Why are you going to throw away a good job, you know, traveling around the world with a big name firm? You should be going to law school or business school now. You shouldn't be going off to go be a cowboy poet in the foothills of New Mexico. But, um, but they are, my, my parents are great. They're still alive and healthy down in Phoenix and Scottsdale. And so they supported, they supported, they said, well, you'll have to learn for yourself. And it was not more than a year before I ran out of money. But yeah. in the meantime, I had developed such a good relationship with Deloitte that Deloitte started feeding me clients. And so they had the largest healthcare system in New Mexico needed an associate level consultant to help them with strategic planning. So that was a serendipitous introduction. That was another mentor of mine, Peter Snow, who's a great strategist in healthcare, brought me under his wing, had me on as basically an associate consultant for Presbyterian Healthcare of New Mexico, where I worked with them for a year and a half. Then Deloitte gave me another lead to someone in Phoenix, Arizona, who was consulting with the newspaper who needed an associate project manager. So I moved there. And then eventually another Deloitte partner down in Australia asked me if I could help them set up the Sydney and Melbourne offices of Deloitte wow. strategy. And they flew me down there. So I was- So the lesson again, is relationships and doing a good le- job. It's very much relationships and people. And so uh, definitely always keep in touch with your mentors and the people who are- who are supportive of you in your career. And that's one of the reasons why I always feel so compelled to try to give back to younger people that I encounter because I was fortunate, I can't even name them all, all the people at Deloitte, the professors who helped me along the way as I transitioned between these various life stages. Yeah, what cool experiences. I'm so glad that you did that because that is a little regret of mine that I didn't have that little moment. And I've actually talked to my kids about it, like taking a year off and going and being a ski instructor or working at a bar in the middle of Jamaica, like whatever it is, just to go and kind of do your thing. Um, I think that's incredible that you did that. So what lessons did you learn um, aside from obviously academic lessons, but at Harvard, like what, what were your takeaways of like, I'm so glad I did this because blank. Well, you mentioned people and we keep talking about the value of people and relationships. And uh, a lot of people ask me, oh, should I go to business school or should I apply to a top 10 or should I go to a different uh, local business school or online business school? And I always talk about the three C's of why you go to business school. And so the three C's are the classwork or the coursework, the uh, credentials, and also the connections. And so what you find out pretty quickly is The coursework is very similar everywhere. Uh, Stanford, Harvard, Wharton, University of Washington, all great schools uh, down in Oregon, great schools down there. I know the Washingtonians don't like to talk about that so much. Uh, Even a lot of the online schools and the traditional schools are offering online education. You're learning accounting, you're learning the basics of marketing, you're learning M&A, you're learning entrepreneurship, entrepreneurial finance. A lot of the coursework and the materials are actually very the same. Sometimes they'll be a little different. So that checks the Xbox. The credentials, getting obviously the brand from Harvard or Stanford is a little different. Uh, the brand of University of Washington is great up here uh, in the Northwest in particular. and is becoming more well-known nationally and globally. And then other schools have their own brand. So the second reason why you want to go for, to go to business school is for the credentials or the, or the brand of the business school you're going to. And then finally are the connections and the kind of people you'll meet. And that's where it's very different. The kind of people you'll meet uh, 
HBS, maybe a little different than Stanford, very different than if you go to a state university or if you're going to an online program or a night program where it's much more difficult to create those connections. And so mm -hmm. one of the things I learned in my second year of B-School is I knew the grades, the classes I took and the grades I got weren't going to matter so much uh, 10 or 20 years down the road. But what I wanted to do was to maximize the number of great connections I made. So for my second year of B-School, I tried every other Sunday at night to uh, invite someone out to a drink that, or you know, to have a dinner that I hadn't not yet met, but had seemed like interesting from a comment they might have made in class or from one of the clubs they might have been participating in. And there are a couple of great friends that I still have 20 plus years later from some of those uh, Sunday evening drinks of just getting to know a few extra people before I left Harvard Business School because I didn't worry so much about the classes or the, or the grades. I worried more about building great relationships while I was there and maintaining those 20 plus years since. Well, I think of you as being a great connector. You are. You're, you're a great referral source. You're super loyal and you take your relationships very seriously. And I, I do think that that's really crucial in business and you do learn it. And I love those three C's. I'm going to use those because people ask and I'm like, I don't know. I don't have an MBA, but there's other people I know who, um, I, I, my opinion has been like, unless it's a top school and unless there's some specific reason, um, as far as the resume building, Right. You know, obviously Harvard and Stanford stand out differently than going to a different type of school. So how did you end up transitioning into tech? Like, how did that whole thing happen? Well, so when I was uh, at Deloitte in Los Angeles, a great friend and mentor who's actually now also based here in Seattle, Mark Ishida was the managing partner. Uh, Mark went on to be a great VC. And then uh, he worked at Microsoft and he's, he's been an entrepreneur. So Mark put me in charge of the IT support because we all had double jobs. We had our day job of consulting and our night job of doing something for the local office. So I was in, placed in charge of the MacBook power books way back when and the tape backup back when we had tape backup. And I really got into all the tech. And so then when I was a cowboy poet in New Mexico, I was on CompuServe back in the day and I had a six-digit CompuServe number, and I was trading E-Trade stocks using ASCII ticker symbols, uh, ASCII instructions back when you just had a scrolling text of, of and I didn't really, you know, those were the earliest days of the internet before we had browsers like Mosaic and later on Explorer. And so I knew I really wanted to be part of that. And so when I decided to give up the cowboy poetry lifestyle and to get into business, go back to business, I knew I wanted to be in tech and I knew I wanted to be doing cutting edge, interesting things with technology. So I went back to Harvard specifically to use that as a transition into tech. And coming out of uh, HBS, I was so fortunate. I knew I wanted to be in CRM, Customer Relationship Management, which now everybody knows, but back then, very few people knew uh, what it was. And I was introduced to another local great entrepreneur who was also a mentor of mine, Brent Fry. Brent Fry and the team at Onyx had just done their B round and they were looking to bring on a few more MBAs and I was introduced to them and they recruited me. So my first job out of Harvard Business School was working as a product manager, product director at Onyx and I got to meet Brent and all the incredible Brent, Brent and amazing. Brent amazing. Yes. Are you still in touch with Brent? I, he's one of my Absolutely. favorites, I love him. He is one yeah. of the greatest entrepreneurs of Seattle between what he did with Onyx, now Smartsheet, and his newest yeah. firm, uh, 
Tara, Tara, Tara Claire. Claire. Yeah. And he's yeah. also, I mean, even more, I like to claim that I've helped develop a few people, but Brent has probably created more local CEOs and more lo local top executives coming out of Onyx and through and Smartsheet and others. So yeah, really. He's, he's also stuff. just such a solid human being and, and, he, and he hired you even though you're not a Dartmouth grad. I know, exactly. <laughs> he didn't hold Harvard against me. <laughs> he didn't hold it against you. He's like, Cornell, really? Yeah. That's so funny. So how are you able to, through kind of having, I would have guessed that starting with Onyx, your bar is probably pretty high. How do you assess an opportunity or a company before you decide to join? Yeah, so uh, one of the, the, the formula that I use at Onyx that I also have used at every company that I've worked with or invested in is something taught to me by an HBS professor, Professor Joe Lassiter, who used to say there are four things that VCs invest in and they look at before they invest in a company. And I thought, well, if that's how VCs invest, then I should invest my career the same way VCs invest their money. And he did a teaser, which now pretty much people always get. But back then he said, what do you think is the first thing VCs look at when they look at a pitch deck? And everybody said the financials, the product. And he said, no, the first thing they look at is the team. They want to know who the founder is. Have they been successful before? Have they seen success? Do they have a team around them that's seen success? Have they, do they have people who are loyal that have followed them? So team first, then the size of the market. Is it a big market? Is it fast growing? Then from there, then look at the company and its product. Is that company a differentiated company or have a differentiated product or business model in that market? And then finally, and then only then do they look at the financials in the deal. But first and foremost, there's, there's a tried and true quote, a great team, a great team can win in any market, right? And a bad team can't even win in a great market. So team comes first, market size and attribute, then the, then the differentiation of that company, and then finally mm -hmm. the deal. Yeah. Well, I know that because um, we've worked together and I know that you value culture. And so mm. when you're talking about great team, obviously the team has to be able to be the culture. Yep. What role have you played in creating great cultures at the companies that you've worked at? Well, obviously it was different when I was coming up and I was first out of, uh, first out of B school, uh, coming into a, a, a growth company like Onyx as a product manager. And there's some folks around town who were back then there that could tell you some great stories of, of how uh, competitive and aggressive I was coming out of B-School to try to help Onyx win. And I think you might've also interviewed, or I'm sure you know Mark Mater and some of the other folks here in town. Yeah, I haven't had Mark on yet, but I wanna have yeah. Mark. I've had Brent on, I would like yeah. to have Mark. So they were all football players. They were very competitive folks. They appreciated my competitiveness. But uh, at every company, and especially once I've become a working CEO, either founding companies, investing companies, working on a board, I think uh, the approach to culture is very different when you're at the top than when you're coming up. But either way, I think one of the things is not to try to impose a culture of what you want on a team or on a business, is to try to figure out what are the best attributes of what's there and try to discover the, the culture of, of what's helping that team win and what's helping that team differentiate, what's helping that team be cohesive and also surprise and delight customers. And then once you've identified the secret sauce of that culture, then you can embrace it and enhance it, put, put more fuel on it, right? So we can 
fuel that culture and then try to make sure you're bringing in more people who are going to expand and further empower that culture. Just like when you helped me bring in some people over to Anvia a few years ago, and I know you were helping another one of the companies that I've been uh, working with uh, recently. Demandstar, yeah. Demandstar. So um, one thing I know that, that you do and you're recruiting, so it's about identifying what's there and what makes it great, and then amplifying that and fueling that further with, uh, with folks, first of all, articulating it, and then being very intentional about activating it. So mm -hmm. not trying to just impose or uh, impose a culture or throw some meaningless words on the wall, but number one, discover what makes your team great, articulate that so everybody is in agreement, and then do specific things once a quarter to activate that, and sometimes even try to measure and analyze that, which I've done at a couple companies, showing what things that we were doing culturally actually improved company results and improved customer satisfaction. Yeah. I love that. And so you started talking about companies and having their special sauce. What has historically been your special sauce? It's like when people say, oh, I need a guy like Russ Mann, what are they looking for? Where are you the best? So in general, I think, I like to think my special sauce is identifying great talent that are inside of companies uh, and helping develop them. And then working with people like you, Shauna, to bring in uh, external talent when required. But I, first of all, I like to try to promote with, from within and also try to uh, really take very seriously promoting diversity from within. Uh, I'm really proud of the fact that at my last two or three companies, almost all, most of my promotions have been women or people of color or people of other diversity, diverse backgrounds that, that were, they, they were overlooked or not necessarily given the opportunity to shine at a middle management or upper management level. And so mm -hmm. at each one of those companies at Winebid and Onvia and others, uh, we did that. And then on top of that, and even over at Uma, where we just brought in a new board member, uh, it was a great uh, uh, woman, woman in tech uh, who um, had, this is her first board seat. So then also when you're bringing in talent, um, you know, you helped me bring in Terry over at Onvio. It's a great female sales lead, which uh, you don't see as many um, female leaders in sales and tech. Uh, and then, again, externally, even working with young up-and-coming people like the kids at Europe to help them bridge the opportunity divide and help kids of color, first-generation immigrant kids, people without necessarily as great a, an opportunity background to mm -hmm. help them uh, without even maybe even a college degree to help them get their first jobs in tech. So um, really identifying talent and believing in talent and empowering people. Yeah, well, people love things. working with you and for you. Um, you you do have a servant leader, uh, servant leadership style. And I think people really appreciate working for somebody that provides um, you know, guidance and transparency and it's empathetic. You've got a lot of the incredible traits of somebody that a lot of people want to follow. So it's no surprise that that's how you would describe yourself. So you've worked across um, various industries, financial services, real estate, uh, e-commerce. Now you're in the wine industry. Right. Do you love to kind of go go deep and wide on all these new things? Because you're a, um, a lifelong learner also. That's just your personality. So right. which one's been your, your favorite or the one that matches the most with your kind of personal passion? Oh, each one is unique and different, like kids, right? Or, uh, or pets, <laughs> every, or, you know, companies, experiences, you can, or vacations, you can't put 
one over the other one. They're all different and unique. I think um, most recently, just each, I, I, there, I've seen people in their careers either stick to one industry, like if I had stayed in CRM for 20 years, or if I had stayed in online real estate for 20 years, uh, that could have been a great career path. And I think there's a great value to really getting deeply connected in one industry and knowing all the players and having people at your peer level come up with you. So, so on the other hand, my career path has been a little more unique and has gone from industry to industry. Uh, and some B2B, some B2C. I think what I find interesting is maybe like the consultant, the, my consulting background, to have to get into an industry, really quickly understand the dynamics, understand the strategies, understand the players, getting connected with all those players, and then figuring out how to grow the company that I'm working with at hand to help reignite growth uh, and to create something new and unique with the company and the team. So I think in the past, uh, I was working more with new startups that were, that were just recently funded, you know, venture, venture backed. In the past five or seven years, I, I seem to be working more with older companies, companies that are 10 plus years old that are maybe needing a little bit of a restart or a kickstart. And so yeah. whether it's uh, Winebit, which is a 25 year old online wine auction company, Anvia before that, Gazelle before that, yeah, it's, it's it's very exciting to get in, assess the team, assess the industry, see what's changing, and figure out how we can make this this team and this company win. And that's yeah. what uh, we've been doing. So, uh, do you have formulas or a, a template or something that you go to to be like, how do I assess the team? And then on top of it, when you're looking at some of these opportunities, um, obviously you talked about um, the four things, but as far as this opportunity where it's later stage, is there a way to, to look at that? And then also my other question is, is there attributes that are consistent um, across the board about the types of people that you like to hire? Oh, that's a lot of questions. I know, uh, I mixed Anvia. them all in. I'm, I'm panicking because we haven't even gotten to wine bid and I have so much yeah. to ask you. I think for each situation at this point, I don't have a documented playbook, but I have a bit of a playbook. Uh, when getting into a new company. And uh, first it involves, of course, understanding the team and the strengths and weaknesses uh, and opportunities that we have within the, the management team, all the way, uh, the management team, the, the middle management, and even to the individual contributors, the superstar developers, the superstar salespeople, the marketers, customer service, finance, try to really understand every function where do we have superstars? Where do we have gaps? Mm -hmm. From there, try to get out and meet customers. Always got to get out and talk to customers. In this day of coronavirus, it's difficult, but whether it's a B2B company or a B2C company, like to get on the phone, get on a Zoom chat, uh, try to go meet customers where they live, either in their offices, in their homes, out at trade shows, or in the case of WineBid, out at wine storage places or restaurants to understand what do they love about the products and the services that our team are offering? How could they be better? And then finally, uh, maybe, uh, maybe unique or maybe not, but I, whenever I enter a new industry, I immediately start getting to know the CEOs and the executives and the investors in that industry, even if they're my competitors. Sometimes some of my competitors are a little surprised when I reach out to them to say hello, but uh, I found that to be very helpful and sometimes very interesting to then get connected into the industry very quickly 
And there are some great stories of how that played out at Anvia and at Gazelle, among other places, um, and how, in fact, it's playing out at WineBid right now to get to know some of the other top auction houses and e-commerce people in the wine. I think industry. it's so smart to know people in your industry as far as the competitors. I do the same thing. I meet with all sorts of people who are competitors. And then I also, re we refer business back and forth and we can collaborate and through COVID and this crazy time to just be like, what are you seeing? How are you feeling? How are you leading? I think yeah. it's really super important. So yeah, my sure second question was around the, the criterion around, around the attributes that you look for in employees. Sure. Well, you know, they always say that um, attitude, not aptitude. It's gotta be attitude and aptitude. But one thing that we definitely learned, I've seen and many people have, understood now uh, over time is that you can get the most skilled salesperson or the most skilled developer, but if they have an abrasive type of personality or if that doesn't work with your culture, your team's culture, then it's not going to work out and it's not going to work out very quickly. So you need to have the right type of attitude and cultural fit. Um, yeah. I think uh, you obviously you want to believe that you can empower people and train people. I also look for people who uh, show results, have a results orientation and not just a participation orientation. Here in town, there's, there are people who have great brands on their resume that come from some of the bigger companies. And, um, but what you find is that they might've been part of a team, but they didn't really particularly own this or that. And you really wanna know what did they own and what did they yeah. drive? Because for smaller companies, you need all hands on deck and you need people who can get things done and not just participate. Uh, and there's a bit of uh, understanding of calculated risk taking. Being an entrepreneur isn't always about taking all the risk all the time. Being an entrepreneur is seizing opportunity, knowing when to put the pedal to the metal and seize the opportunity versus when to sit back and try to understand what's going on and calculated risk taking. And so people who are taking too much risk or being too, too out there in the way they participate in a company uh, may not be great, but people who are too uh, too shy and under the radar and um, just trying to keep a low profile and turn the crank every day are also aren't a great fit in many startups or growth companies yeah. or in the kind of cultures I try to cultivate. Yeah, for sure. Well, you've gotten a ton of recognition for being, you know, best places to work, um, most admired CEO, which was a super cool honor. I'd never seen that one. Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year. So many different um, awards and recognition. I know that's not what you're about. You're about like putting the, um, the light on others. Um, but which of those are you most proud of or, or would you say made you feel successful or is that not a way of measuring success for you? It's not, it's not, a. I mean, obviously all accolades are always deeply appreciated. And some, like some people say, it's, uh, you know, even money is just a way of keeping some track. But I think more than, for example, the greatest place to work one uh, down in San Diego was, uh, was really, that one was special because that one was a team vote. So all the companies yes. and the, t the people vote for that. It's not a PR thing or an advertising thing. So, you know, Entrepreneur of the Year is great, but that's, that was, you know, that's about an the individual, individual thing, it's not about yeah. the team. So, yeah. but more than that is, again, we talked about authentic experiences, more than an award like that, which is great for PR is having these great successes as a team, like when you launch a product and it goes really well, like the 360 degree bottle shots we have on WineVid or you know, 
this past Sunday night, like I said, last night was one of the biggest auctions of all time this company has had. And so to yeah. celebrate that as a team is super exciting and, and the people who made that possible. Yeah, I want to hear about Winebit. Like, and I did read about the 360 bottle shot. Tell me more about that and also the just the business model of Winebit. How do you guys make money? So Winebid is the largest and longest standing online wine auction site. It's been around almost as long as that little bookseller down the street uh, that's done okay online. Uh, back when people thought you couldn't sell wine, especially fine and vintage wine online, some crazy entrepreneurs out of Chicago decided to do that. So the business model now is we help individuals sell wine to other individuals because right now in the country, it's not legal for an individual to sell wine you have to do it through an auction house or other retailer um, in most states. And so unlike eBay, which is peer to peer, we're more like the real real, where all the goods, because it's luxury goods, the goods need to be authenticated. And without, uh, without the goods coming to our warehouse, where we inspect and photograph every bottle individually, we want to make sure that every bottle is authentic and it's real and that we know where it came from and that it's as high quality as possible. That doesn't mean that on the site you might not see wine, like white wines that we know have changed color and are probably not great for drinking, or you might occasionally see a label that's scratched or something like that, but we don't feel like our job is not to say this is drinkable or not drinkable. Our job is to as accurately and specifically describe the condition of every bottle and to provide as many trust signals whether it's high-res photography, 360 photography, more detailed condition notes than any other site. I think the photography and uh, the photography and condition notes on our site are probably better than almost any other site, whether and not just in wine, but in any other re-commerce category, whether it's eBay or RealReal or some of the watch sites that are dealing with luxury vintage watches. And so mm -hmm. uh, that's one of the things that we're really proud about is our focus on authenticity and integrity and the bottles that we bring and the way we display them and the way we do business with our consigners and the buyers of the wine. Yeah, and so what's the business model? There's like a revenue share between the seller and wine bid? It's just like the real, like, real. I think I like, get 60% yeah. or 50% or something from Yeah, it's the like real, luxury real. real estate. There's a, but we're the only, so the seller pays a commission on, on the wines that they're selling and the buyer pays a commission on the wines that they're buying. The okay. buy side is a flat 17%, which is one of the lowest in the industry. Yeah. Most auction houses charge 20% plus, so 25. We only charge mm -hmm. 17. On the sell side, we charge between 10 and 20% to the seller based on the size of the consignment. Yeah, and so you're talking about your job being to give as many trust points as possible around the specific bottle, not necessarily what's inside the bottle, because right. like, for example, my brother just turned 50, last weekend mm -hmm. and they're big wine people and we brought out a bottle from his birth year yep. and we were so excited to all drink it together and um we were like ugh, it tastes like vinegar and then we poured it and um and put it in a decanter and let it sit a little and, and then it actually turned fine and it was right. pretty good but i was thinking if we had bought it through an auction house we'd probably come with a different level of expectation or that's not part of it well, it is. Um, again, we do our absolute best to document where the wine came from, the provenance, as well as the condition of the wine. We look at color. We look at about, we kind of are like the FICO score of wine. I used to work at okay. FICO too. So we have a multi-point inspection process for every bottle to determine the authenticity and as much as possible, the quality. 
at the end of the day, every bottle is unique and every single bottle, it might've aged differently. It might've been handled differently. So when you're, when you're drinking a 50 year old bottle, certain 50 year old bottles from California or other regions, will, wine people will just know that wouldn't necessarily age that well. Certain other bottles are known to be age worthy. So, uh, so our goal is to provide as much detail as possible for a buyer to make an informed decision, including knowing that it's an authentic bottle, but and to do as much as possible to, to, to provide the, the most assurances. Although I can tell you that the most expensive bottle ever sold on Winebid was a $50,000 bottle of wine, a Sinequinon. Whoa, okay. Uh, which is by far, which is not the most expensive bottle of vintage wine ever sold, which I believe is a half million dollar bottle of wine. But on Winebid, a $50,000 bottle of wine that the buyer for a fact knew was not going to be drinkable, but it was a limited edition bottle of wine and this collector wanted to complete their set of, that makes of wines from that maker so in fact you often for a birthday or an anniversary or something you get people buying certain bottles uh, out of a novelty factor whether yes. or not the wine is drinkable and so that's again why we will put bottles up on the site that we know may not be drinkable but that inevitably there is a collector out there in the world and we have collectors from all over, from the U.S., from Asia, from Europe, uh, that are buying these wines. And inevitably, there's a collector out there who really wants that bottle for one reason or another, and maybe not yeah. necessarily to drink. So are they able to put that on there, too, just like looking for like a chat? We don't have case... that function yet, but that's something we've been looking at. <laughs> I would just think that would be interesting to be like, I want this one bottle to complete my collection. We have favorites, so you can look up something, and if we don't have it in stock because because it's an auction, the stock changes literally every week. Yeah, but or you can get an alert if it comes yes, in or something. Exactly. Oh, that's good. Okay, exactly. and so tell me more about what it's been like through the pandemic for the business. How has the business been impacted? Yeah, the pandemic, uh, we, uh, we would not wish this pandemic on anyone. Uh, however, I can tell you that Winebid's been doing well during the pandemic. For a variety of factors. At first, we were concerned whether we would be allowed to stay open, uh, but then it was very quickly determined that alcohol and wine is an essential business. It's part of food and beverage delivery, and there were enough people all around the country and in New York, California, and elsewhere that were clamoring for their wine that governors around the country declared that brick and mortar liquor stores as well as online wine uh, were considered essential. So, with that being said, what we found is um, the restaurants, a lot of restaurants and bars where people would normally go to drink fine wine have been shut down. And so people are drinking more wine at home um, and they didn't even want to go to the grocery store. So I've actually been quoted as saying that the past five months have accelerated online wine by about five years. Uh, there were already some trends in place, but things have accelerated significantly. And so we have seen all time high record number of bidders in our auction. We've had all-time amounts of wine coming in of people wanting to sell their collections. And we've been, we've been reaching great results for our company and for our team and keeping our team very busy. But kind of like we were talking about before, uh, in the midst of that, we recognize what's going on in the community. And so one of the things I'm most proud of, again, of our team is we were presented with an opportunity or basically some folks in Napa, a bunch of wineries wanted to give back and they wanted to donate money 
to restaurant workers around the country because so many restaurant workers were out of work. And a lot of those restaurant workers, especially the high restaurant workers, the sommeliers, the waiters, are the people who normally market and promote those wines. And because they didn't have the ability to do an online auction, because they would have traditionally done that as a live auction, they came to us in Napa and they said, would we be willing to do that for them? And so we aggregated from all these different wineries, the $100,000 worth of wine, we were able to turn that into $120,000, a 20% premium uh, of donations to the Restaurant Workers Community Foundation uh, out of New York, but distributed to restaurant workers nationally. And so that's amazing. Again, Is that yeah, the partnership with Blue Cart? Uh, that's similar. So Blue Cart, similarly, Blue Cart is, uh, provides um, restaurant purchasing software for mm. both um, products and, and um, foodstuffs to restaurants. And so they wanted to do something similar. So they saw what we did with the RWCF and the Napa um, wineries for restaurants. And they introduced us to a lot of their restaurants. And um, we took a certain portion of those consignments uh, and, and donated that to the RWCF. So, so there's an example of trying to take the culture of the team, which we, our culture that we stated is the sommelier culture, being knowledgeable, sharing authenticity, sharing experiences, being hospitable, and turning that sommelier culture into something that we could do well for others. And similarly with the Black Lives Matter movement, which uh, we took very seriously, a lot of other folks, a lot of e-commerce people in general are posting the black square on their Instagram or something like that. I wanted us to do something more meaningful and contextual. So we went out and used our own company money to buy uh, several cases of wine from each of the top black winemakers in the country. And we put those up for auction. And we basically said, we're going to take all the money from these lots and donate them to the NAACP because uh, the winemakers we spoke with said they would like a, if we were going to donate any money to any cause the NAACP would be the best cause to donate to. So once again trying to tie the culture of the company and the team ethos into doing well for others and so um, and trying to do it in a meaningful and contextual way and not just a, a social media style way. Uh, so yeah. that's those are the kinds of things that I've been most proud of you should, you should be do. super proud. So. so what are your goals for the business? Like, obviously you're having a lot of success. You're having a ton of fun. Yeah. Um, where are you taking the business? So the business opportunity here, the business is owned by a private equity group, a family office, and their goal is to, for, for us to grow this company successfully and profitably to continue to expand, to be a leading provider of, uh, digital wine, not just auction wine, but the best way for consumers all around the world to find great wines, both vintage and recent wines, and to have them delivered in a high-touch quality, authenticated way. And, uh, and so that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to take advantage of all the latest technology, like the 360 high-res, trying to figure out how to introduce some artificial intelligence opportunities. There's all kinds of great things going on in e-commerce right now and of course digital marketing that we're trying to take advantage of as well as on the back end the things that you don't see logistics changes in logistics changes in shipping opportunities to have wine delivered more quickly more effectively more safely because these these expensive vintage bottles you generally want to transport them especially in hot days like this in temperature control environments so um, that there's all sense. kinds of things in wine e-commerce and wine logistics where there's great opportunities to expand this business globally, and that's what we're trying to do. 
while of course building a great team that does well, gives back, and 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 uh, provides a great platform for the people who work at the company to grow and expand our careers. Yeah. Well, if anyone can do it, you'll do it for sure. So when you're not working, what are you doing? How are you unwinding these days? Because obviously people's stress level, whether they are aware of it or not, is probably higher than usual. Well, as we discussed, it's very often drinking a nice glass of wine, <laughs> opening up and experimenting with some new vintage or producer. Uh, when, uh, when I can, I try to get out and do a little fly fishing. Or um, as you mentioned, uh, my, my wife is very involved in the symphony. She's involved in the community uh, with the symphony. And so we try to enjoy symphony. Now that uh, symphony has been unfortunately closed because of the pandemic, we enjoy some of the digital streaming and production that Seattle Symphony has been doing. And then finally, it's actually very relaxing and very balancing and very joyful for me to be able to work with my mentees, um, both younger business people that I may be advising or again, the, the young students from year up that I enjoy both my current mentee as well as former mentees who I like to keep in touch with and check in and see how they're doing. That to yeah. me is one of my greatest uh, joys is to work with those people. Is there any sort of rituals or behaviors that you do to keep or to set yourself up, I guess, for a good week or a good day even? Um, you know, I have my daily ritual. I try to get up early. I want to hear. Have, I've been getting into making nice coffee as opposed to just typical drip or curried coffee. So kind of like the the um, the culture of appreciation and the culture of authenticity that that I've been getting to enjoy with wine. I'm now extending to to coffee in the morning. I've been yeah. trying to get a workout in, like so many people, a COVID workout, which has had to change because I used to go to the gym, read yeah. the news, or uh, Wall Street Journal and uh, tech news, and then. A lot of my day is touching base with people, um, either customers, partners, or my own team, because we are spread around the country. We're doing a lot of Zoom and Microsoft Teams meetings. And then yeah. at the evening, it's a debrief with my wife, who's also in tech, and, and then maybe a glass of wine. But that's kind of the routine almost yeah. every day. And then the yeah. weekend's trying to get out and maybe go fishing. Nice. Well, I love seeing you. My final question is, what fuels you? What fuels Russ Mann? Well, we've already, I think, covered it many times that what fuels me is, is helping other people in business and tech, empowering other people, particularly um, people up and coming, people bridging the opportunity divide, people of diversity, women in STEAM, and others, helping mentor people at my companies, whether I'm the CEO or investor, advisor, and then other young people in the community. Uh, that's really what fuels me the most and working with great people like you. So when I'm not mentoring people in my own company, but I'm looking to bring in people, you've helped me, Shauna, several times. And I know you're oh. always on the lookout for great talent. You're a great connector. Yes. And Thank so you. working with people like you is what fuels me. <laughs> Mic drop. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I will let you know when it comes out. I'm super psyched to have time with you selfishly. And I'm sending you big air hugs and yes. kisses to Deanna and everybody. Great. It was great. Thanks for having me on. And I of look course. forward to when we can enjoy a glass of wine in person soon. I can't wait. Much continued success. I'll talk All to right. you soon. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. And follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. 
You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.